Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun, FX's new international spy thriller The Veil, starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge, inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, Bad Dirt. What makes Bad Dirt so bad? The answer? The ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like Bad Dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me each and every week is a man that would like to remind us all that crime does not pay, at least not like it used to. He is the captain. Well, the stock market prices have gone up on lube jobs and mouthies, but that's another story. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. This week we are drinking Anytime Minutes by the good people at Willow's Family Ales, garage grade, three and three quarter bottle caps out of five. This is a double IPA that is great anytime, anywhere, and it's strong with an ABV of 8.5%. And this week's beer was brought to us by these strong Garage Army members. First up, we have Ryan in Minneapolis, Minnesota. A big shout out to Richard in Hampton, Georgia. And a cheers, mates, to Meg in Dedham, Massachusetts. And a big cheers to Ryan in Wentzville, Missouri. Here's a long-distance cheers to Louise in Reading, UK. And last but certainly not least, we have Marsha in Coquitlam, British Columbia. So thanks to everybody for joining us in the garage this week with beers in hand. If you want to help us out with next week's show, go to truecrimegarage.com and click on the donate button. And the holiday season is a great time to catch up on old episodes. So download the Stitcher app. It is free. And also check out our bonus show, Off the Record, on Stitcher Premium. And that's enough of the business. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. Camp Scott was a 410-acre camp that was owned and operated by the Tulsa-based Magic Empire Council of Girl Scouts since 1928. This camp was located in a wooded area, about two miles from the town of Locust Grove. 
Locust Grove, Oklahoma is a small town, even today, with less than 2,000 people. This densely wooded area is about 40 miles from Tulsa. Locust Grove has a large Native American population. Members of the Cherokee and other tribes settled there after they were forcibly relocated from more eastern areas. The camp had facilities for up to 140 children and a staff of 30 counselors. Camp Scott was divided into 10 units, named after Indian tribes such as Choctaw and Quapaw. The Girl Scouts were assigned their units and to their counselors when they arrived at Camp Scott. The counselors were generally older girls, ages 16 to 25. There were no male counselors at the camp. Most of the campers came from the Tulsa metropolitan area. Camp Scott housed both Girl Scouts and their younger counterparts, the Brownies. So the girls attending ranged in age from second grade through high school. One thing of note, the camp was partially fenced and had gates that were locked at night. But the fence has been described as not the kind that could keep anyone in or out. In the summer of 77, this place was filled with young people. The Girl Scouts is a group synonymous with camping, the outdoors, volunteering, and of course, cookies. And a new batch of scout troops shuffled in every two weeks to enjoy everything summer camp has to offer. Until that one terrible night in June. What took place the night of June 13th, 1977, was, and still is, horrifying. Parents sent their young, happy daughters to an idyllic two-week camp, and they never returned. What was done to these girls can only be described as pure evil. This week, we examine the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders. Well, the trailer did a good job of setting up the location for this week's case, so let's dive right into the events of June 12th and June 13th of 1977. Buses full of excited campers arrived around 3 p.m. on Sunday, June 12th. This was to be the first day of a two-week camp. The counselors offloaded the girls checking their names off the list. The girls were separated into units by age and school grade. There were 10 units total. Once the girls were sorted, their bags were loaded onto a pickup truck and transferred to the appropriate tents by counselors in the camp ranger, Ben Woodward. 27 girls were assigned to the Kiowa unit, and they were allowed to select their tent mates. All the tents had four girls, but for some reason, tent number eight in the Kiowa had only three girls assigned. The three girls who were left after everyone else picked their roommates these three did not come to camp with friends and did not know anyone else in the unit. These girls were Lori Farmer, age 8, Denise Milner, age 10, Michelle Gousset, age 9. The three were introduced and agreed to share a tent. They were sent off to unpack and get acquainted. The girls unrolled their sleeping bags and put them on three of the four cots in tent number 8. Lori and Michelle took the cots on the south end of the tent, and Denise took the first cot on the north side. 
They stowed some of their other stuff on the empty cot. Side note real quick here. Tent number eight was actually referred to by the Kiowa unit campers and staff as tent number seven. They did not count the counselor's tent as a tent with a number, only the scout tents. It has become known as tent number eight. There's even a well-known book about the case with this title. The counselors for the Kiowa unit were Carla Sue Wilhite, 23, D. Elder, 20, and Susan Emery, only 18. All of these counselors were personally hired by camp director Barbara Day, with at least one being a former camper and two being repeat counselors. All attended a week-long pre-camp conference earlier in the month. This is to get acclimated to the rules and protocols of the Girl Scout camp. There they were told if they saw any outsiders on the camp property, they are to tell them that it's private property and to leave. This was pretty much the extent of the security of this camp. The counselors arrived at Camp Scott earlier on the day of the 12th prior to the arrival of the campers, and some noticed that someone deliberately cut off the flap on tent number six, a large section of the newish tent, about four feet by five feet, was cut off. It was repaired with linen material so the tent was usable that day. Contrary to the beliefs of many, no counselors were assigned the campers' tents. The counselors shared their own tent accommodations within each unit. So, Captain, basically what we have here is we have seven tents that are full of campers, four in each with the exception of what is actually cabin number seven has three girls in it. But it's labeled number eight because the counselor's tent that only houses counselors is not counted, uh, it's not numbered per the camp. Yeah, and this is a little strange because every time I went to summer camp, there was a counselor that stayed in our cabin with us. Yes, me, me as well. Uh, the Kiowa unit was more isolated than the rest of the units. It was located right next to the border of dense woods at the westernmost edge of the camp and was accessible only by a service road that came to a dead end at the campsite. The unit was arranged in a semicircle with a kitchen and a meeting area in the middle of the circle, and the circle comprised of the eight platform tents. These were really 12-foot by 14-foot canvas cabins on top of wooden platforms two feet off of the ground. Yeah, so basically it, it looks like a cabin, but the walls and the, the ceiling and or the roof is made out of the tent material, but the floor is wooden, and then you have some steps to get up onto the wooden platform. The canvas sides were tied tightly to the wooden platforms, but could be rolled up as needed. Each tent was large enough to house four girls. Tent number eight was the last one in the unit, furthest removed from the counselor's tent 100 yards away. Tent number eight was near a path that led to the restrooms, but was 75 feet from the next closest tent. It was not visible from the tent that housed counselors Susan, Carla, and D. I'm going to post pictures of the actual tents and the layout on our Instagram at True Crime Garage. Now, we aren't sure what happened for portions of this first day. Likely, the camp engaged in get-to-know-you activities. We do know that dinner in the Great Hall cafeteria was around 5.30 or 6 p.m. After dinner, all the girls gathered and D a Kiowa unit counselor, led the whole camp in song. The sky began to look ominous, and it started to pour 
as the girls made their way to their tents. By the time they arrived at their tents, everyone was soaking wet. After dinner activities were canceled due to the storm, and the counselors told the girls to change into dry clothes and get ready for bed. The kids spent the evening writing letters home to their parents. At 8 p.m., there was a meeting in the kitchen area in the middle of the unit where the girls had cookies and the counselors read Winnie the Pooh. We know that at some point, Denise Milner asked Dee if she could call home. She was already homesick. She did not want to go to camp, but her mother convinced her to give it a try. Dee comforted Denise and told her to stick it out and that she could call her mother in the morning. Right. Counselors were trained to try to keep the girls from calling home, finding that it didn't help the homesick girls to feel any better. Well, and it probably didn't help their return rate. <laughs> I mean, if a girl's calling home a couple times during camp, her parents might think twice about sending her next year. And we all know how young kids can act too, given mm-hmm. these situations. If they're in a, if they're at a place that they don't really want to be, they will really exaggerate. You know, I hate it here. It's terrible here. It's the worst thing ever. And you find out, well, they're singing songs, they're reading books, they're writing letters. They're it's awful. Yeah, it's, it's a, torture. <laughs> it's horrible. You know what I find horrible though? I don't like. I never like the get to know you activities where you have to say. Hi, my name is Nick. I'm from Columbus. I go to school here and I enjoy boating or, you know, you have to like name a hobby or something. Right. And it, cause I always nice feel to like, meet you. yeah, I always feel like I'm on the spot. And then not only that, there's a whole bunch of people that you're meeting for the first time and you, you try to remember their names or something they're into and it just doesn't work for me. Yeah. I used to get extreme homesickness when I'd spend the night at people's houses. So then I eventually just stopped spinning at people's houses because I'm like, oh, I'm just going to wake up in the middle of the night and start crying anyways, and this is not a good look for me. So uh, let me just leave about 11. Denise returned to tent number eight, and she wrote a letter to her mother, uh, of course, this letter saying that she didn't really like camp and wanted to come home. All three girls in tent number eight wrote letters home that night. The rain ended around 9 p.m., according to the camp staff. That night, the counselors checked on each of the tents and told the girls it was time for lights out. This was around 1030. Girls stayed up late and told ghost stories and giggled and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Some people have reported that there was an after dark game of hide and seek. The camp was not lit at night. There were no electric lights that were left on except at the rangers and directors houses. And the absolute darkness was part of the experience that the girls were expected to get used to. There was a kerosene lantern hung at the latrine area for use, but the girls were told to always leave their tent in the company of a buddy and always carry a flashlight to help them navigate their way around in the pitch black. Right. The camp was surrounded by dense woods, which contributed to the darkness. Now we need to get into the events and true stories of some things that we know that went on that night in question. So first we have a counselor in the Comanche unit. She reported she was walking back from the restrooms at some point after lights out. And she noticed a dim light shining in the woods nearby. It appeared just beyond the tree line surrounding the camp. The counselor knew that no one should be in that area. She shined her flashlight in that direction. As as soon as her flashlight hit the tree line, the dim light was turned off. This was in the direction of the service road, correct? Mm-hmm. 
In a few minutes, it returned and began moving northwest in the direction of the Kiowa unit. Again, she tried to see what it was with her flashlight, and again, the light went off. The counselor waited for several minutes and didn't see the light again, so she returned to her own tent. Around 9 p.m., Susan Emery left Kiowa unit to go to the staff house to hang out. She was not on duty that night. Around 10.30 p.m., D. Elder decided to make a tent check of the Kiowa unit. She went to every tent and talked with the girls. The last tent she visited was the furthest away, tent number eight. All three of the girls were finishing their letters home by flashlight. Dee told them it was time for bed, and after a few minutes, she closed the flap on the tent and left. Susan returned to the Kiowa unit around 11 p.m. At some point in the night, Counselor Celia Stahl said a girl started screaming in the woods, and counselors found her sleepwalking. They put her back to bed in her tent. Another thing that was reported was at some time in the night, a young Girl Scout started screaming in the Quapaw unit, which housed the youngest campers. A frightened girl told counselors that she was walking from her tent to the restroom area when someone grabbed her by her raincoat. Other girls said something was walking around their tents. One girl said she saw a man in the woods or possibly two men, reports vary. Right. Counselors presumably attributed all of this paranoia to first night jitters and or pranks and escorted the girls back to their tents. I'm sure that it's probably fairly hard to tell what is fact and what is fiction regarding some of these stories that these young campers are passing along to the counselors. Carla and Dee both reported hearing the girls giggling and messing around into the night. Carla reported that she and Dee were awakened at 1.30 a.m. by some of the girls in tent number five, slamming the door in the bathroom area. Carla got up and escorted the girls back to their tent. Then, as they both lay awake on their cots, Carla and Dee heard a strange noise. It seemed to be a low, guttural moaning. Dee and Carla got up and went outside, walking toward tent number five. Carla then walked toward the road that led to the camp. When she reached the road, she pointed her flashlight in the direction of the sound. She could see nothing in the woods, and the moaning stopped. She said she assumed the noise was some kind of animal. Right. She walked back to the tent area, and she and Dee checked out tent number five, and then they returned to their own tent. The strange moaning noise then resumed. Sometime in the night, likely after 2 a.m., as Dee and Carla went back to sleep, the flaps of the counselor's tent were taken off the hook screws that held them. Dee's and Susan's purses and Carla's glasses disappeared. Around this time, young campers who woke up saw a light outside their tents. The girls in tent number seven watched as the light approached their tent, and then suddenly the tent panel was pulled open and a light shone inside the tent. A 10-year-old camper watched terrified as a large, dark figure glared into the tent, then dropped the panel and moved away. At some point, the hook screws holding down the back of tent number eight were removed. A girl in Cherokee reported hearing screams around 3 a.m. In one of the more disturbing details, one camper in Quilpaw unit reported hearing someone screaming or moaning, Mama, Mama. In the morning, Carla woke up to her alarm at 6 a.m. She planned to get up 30 minutes early so she could take a hot shower at the staff house 
a few hundred yards away from the service road. And at these camps, I mean, you're lucky if you get hot water at all. So <laughs> right. really you have to get there early and fast if you want to have a hot shower. Well, Carla tiptoed out of her dark tent and down the steps. It was a beautiful, calm, sunny day after the storms the night before. Carla walked along the trail to the showers when a flash of bright yellow caught her eye, and she walked over closer to investigate. She saw from several yards away a sleeping bag on the ground. Then she saw a child lying partially on and under the bag and partially on the ground. She wondered what the girl was doing sleeping outside of her tent. But then what she was seeing registered. This small child was not sleeping. Something terrible has happened. And Carla ran away. Strangely, she recounts that her first inclination was to run and wake up Dee and Susan and the other Kiowa counselors. Right. And insist that they count all of the girls in the Kiowa tents. She told them she saw a girl's body on the ground and more sleeping bags next to it near the trail. And she was afraid the girl on the ground was from her unit. Yeah. Susan and Dee and Carla ran to all the Kiowa tents, checking on the occupants who were still asleep, but found tent number eight was empty. They had 24 girls accounted for, but Denise, Lori, and Michelle were missing. Carla looked closer into the dark tent and saw blood on the floor and mattresses. She was trying to make heads or tails of everything that was going on. Yeah, it's almost like she wants to count all the campers first. So if she goes back to the body, that she'll know that it's not one of her campers or if it is one of her campers before she has to investigate the body. Yeah, and this girl, she was lying near a tree about 150 yards away from tent number eight. It's very likely that it was simply because she was just too afraid of what she might find. Right. So instead, Carla told Dee and Suzanne to make sure that the Kiowa girls didn't leave their tents while she ran for help. The counselors were trained to try to keep calm and keep from upsetting their girls in scary situations. Carla cut across the field toward the nurse's quarters, which was approximately 300 yards to the south. But Susan apparently decided to investigate what Carla saw and when she came to the area where the girl lay on the ground, she started screaming. Right. Dee came running and put her hand over Susan's mouth and told Susan to go back to the unit to keep the girls calm. Dee felt the first sleeping bag and felt a body inside. And same for the second sleeping bag. She ran for her car. Meanwhile, Carla reached the nurse's quarters and frantically roused Marianne Alabeck, the camp nurse, telling her something terrible had happened and there was a body down in the Kiowa unit. The nurse dressed quickly and hurried to her car while Carla raced next door to awaken camp director Barbara Day and her husband Richard. Meanwhile, Nurse Alabeck encountered Dee on the road in her own car, and when asked what happened, Dee told her, there are those little girls down there, and I think they're all dead. The nurse drove over to the Kiowa unit and found Suzanne, who led her to the spot where the bodies lay. What Nurse Olibeck saw and Susan, Carla, and Dee saw earlier was horrifying. Denise Milner lay on her back on the ground. Her legs spread wide apart. She was nude from the waist down. There were visible wounds and blood on her face. The nurse touched the carotid artery to see if there was a pulse, but when she squeezed, blood came out of the girl's mouth. Trying to find her wrist, the nurse realized that the dead girl's hands were tied together behind her back. 
Camp director Barbara Day and her husband arrived. Barbara stayed at the car while Richard ran over to the body on the ground. He instinctively picked up a sleeping bag lying partially under Denise and covered the dead girl. Richard was a surgical technician at a large Tulsa hospital, and he knew dead when he saw it. He noted that there were two other sleeping bags that clearly contained bodies, and he told his wife to call the police. But strangely, no one seems to have actually opened the two sleeping bags to check on the contents. What if one or both of the girls were still alive? In any event, Richard and Barbara got into their car and drove to the house of Camp Ranger and ex-Marine Ben Woodward. He lived in a house on Camp Scott grounds with his wife and kids. His wife was the camp cook. The days had trouble waking Ben and finally had to let themselves in and shake him in his bed until he woke up. Richard told him what was going on and Barbara called the highway patrol. Richard went to the camp gate, which was locked from the previous night, to wait for the police and then led them to the Kiowa unit. Ben Woodward went to the site of the bodies. Horrified at what he saw, he was near tears. When he recovered himself and looked around, he noted a red and white 9-volt flashlight with a roll of duct tape lying near the bodies. A decision was quickly made not to tell the other campers what happened. Multiple stories are told by girls who were at the camp that day about what information they were given. Some were told that there was a problem with the water supply. Others say that there was an accident. As one article said, nothing in the Girl Scout manual told these young counselors how to deal with this situation. The campers were awakened by the camp bell, told to get dressed, and sent to breakfast in the Great Hall, with counselors being sure to steer them onto pathways from the scene. After they were fed breakfast and packed up, they did some arts and crafts and went swimming until the buses arrived and authorities approved the girls' departure. All the girls were loaded up and sent back home to Tulsa. During all of this time, while they kept campers distracted, camp staffers were using name lists to try to figure out exactly who the missing girls were. Counselors were being questioned, and the tents and camp areas were searched by investigators. There are conflicting stories about what the campers' parents were told about why the girls were coming home, but it seems most believed that there was, quote, an accident at the camp, and the parents found themselves waiting for the buses, not being certain whether their children were coming home. When they saw their daughters emerge from the buses, many of the parents broke down with relief. The three victims' parents were reached by phone and told their daughters had been killed, but not much more information than that was given. Camp Scott officially closed on June 14th, 1977, and never reopened. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go, for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies. 
to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com slash garage today. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. Visit IXL.com garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com garage today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, You'll always have new flavors to explore. 
Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need to pack a lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. And we're back from the tasty beer break. A holiday cheers to everyone out there. Mm -hmm. Peter Weaver was the sheriff of Mays County and was one of the first responders on that morning at Camp Scott. He quickly decided that the Slayer or Slayers likely picked that particular tent because it was over 50 feet from the others and near thick brush, which would give the killer cover. Weaver stated that he touched Denise Milner's body and estimated her body temperature at around 70 degrees. This led many people to speculate that Denise was only dead for a short time as her body was somewhat warm around 7 a.m. At that time of year in Oklahoma, the sun begins to rise as early as 5 a.m. Sheriff Weaver called in the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation or the OSBI Agent Mike Wilkerson was assigned the horrific case of the three dead Girl Scouts. His two brothers were also agents, and like many Oklahomans, the Wilkersons were part Native American. Mike and his brother Dave wrote Someone Cry for the Children, a comprehensive book about this case, which we will reference from time to time. When Wilkerson arrived at the scene, he met up with another agent, with the district attorney, Sheriff Weaver, a medical examiner, and a highway patrolman, this is Howard Barry. Trooper Barry lived less than a mile from Camp Scott, and a call from dispatch sent him to the scene around 6.30 a.m. Also called in was Mike Wheat, a reporter who helped police by taking crime scene photos. Wheat took hundreds of photos of the bodies and the scene to document the findings for investigators. He is still disturbed to this day at the memory of what he witnessed. Three sleeping bags, one yellow plaid, one dark green, the other a red flower pattern, lying together beside the trail under a tree. Denise Milner's body and the other two inside the bags. He photographed inside of tent number eight. Wheat commented later when he was done that he noted blood on the soles of his shoes. This next part, Captain, is very strange and I don't really know what to make of it. When Agent Wilkerson arrived, he learned that the two sleeping bags had still not been opened. Yeah. This was at 10 a.m., about four hours after discovering the bodies. No one had opened the sleeping bags to check the girls. Yeah. D and Richard Day both at least touched the sleeping bags and guessed that there were bodies inside, but it's, it's shocking to me that the bags weren't opened earlier. 
When law enforcement officers opened the first sleeping bag, they found eight-year-old Lori Farmer wrapped in bloody bedsheets. The next bag was opened and revealed Michelle Gousset. She was bloody and was bound in a fetal position with cord around one hand, then looped tightly under her buttocks and bound to the other hand. Some reports state that Lori and Michelle had ligatures around their necks. Blood-stained bedclothes were found in their sleeping bags. There is a disagreement about what the two girls in the sleeping bags were wearing when they were found, Mm -hmm. but one report says that they were naked from the waist down. The other reports say that they may have been wearing something. The body of 10-year-old Denise Milner was lying out in the open half-nude. She was lying on her back with her pajama top pulled up under her arms and her arms taped down around the shoulders with black duct tape that ran across the pajama top. Her hands were bound behind her with thick, dark two-inch duct tape and some kind of cord, the duct tape over top of the cord. She was beaten severely on her face in the shape of some kind of blunt object or instrument was visible on her face. Observers said it appeared to be a rectangle approximately two inches long and three quarters of an inch wide. Around Denise's neck, there were two ligatures. One was a cord. The other was an elastic bandage. Attached to the cord was a cylindrical object approximately four inches long made of terry cloth towel material. The theory at the time is the elastic bandage was pulled over her face to make some type of blindfold. The terry cloth object was a carefully handmade and hand-sewn gag. You said there was discrepancies on what the findings were. Like on what they were wearing. What two of the girls were wearing. Yeah, these would be both of the girls in the sleeping bags. Right, but you would assume with all these pictures being taken that we'd have evidence so we could look back on and say, well, this is what the photo says. Yes, and so where I think that lies is that I don't think there's a discrepancy for the investigators. I think there's a discrepancy for the general public because I wouldn't assume that all of the photos have been released publicly. Right. The other thing here before we move on regarding some of the other items found and some of the evidence out there, Captain, is this this terry cloth object, which has been noted as carefully handmade, hand sewn. Okay, so whether it was intended to be made as a gag, you know, to gag one of the girls or if it was just made for something else and then used as a potential gag. It's interesting to me because it's referenced as a carefully handmade, hand sewn object, right? Right. So this is very likely a one of a kind object. And we've seen this in several cases that we've covered before where we have objects or things that were used, materials that were used in dumping of a body or binding a person or binding a victim that are one of a kind. And later we see those items photographed and photographs of such released to the public because again, they're one of a kind somebody out there, uh, knows about, should know about these items, especially if the killer didn't make it. Yeah, even if you can just identify the material, if we know where that material came from, maybe we can figure out who bought that material. And we saw this specifically in the Amy Mahalovic case, where we have this this thing that was probably used to move her body or to cover up her body when it lied in the field, but it was somebody repurposed this item. Somebody put some work into this item. And unfortunately, in Amy's case, we didn't get this wasn't released to the public until 20 some years later. Now, I don't know. I couldn't go back and find if this 
This particular terry cloth object was released publicly or pictures of it publicly at the time of the initial investigation. The other item we have is that flashlight. So this is a red and white 9-volt flashlight. This is a bulky, almost rectangle-shaped flashlight with a large handle on top with the light and lens in the front. These are very typical. You see them in a lot of homes, and a lot of people use these and purchase these for camping. Right. This is also possibly the blunt object that was used in the beating. Very likely. And the other thing, too, we we talked about uh, Wayne Gravett, his case not too long ago, just a few weeks ago. This is a similar flashlight to the one that was used to make into a bomb for that case. Now, the lens for this flashlight was covered by a piece of dark green or black garbage bag. There's, I've had several people, I've read several sites that state that it's dark green. I wasn't there, and I don't think these people were there. When I see pictures of this flashlight, this material, this plastic material appears to be black to me. Right. This is attached to the lens, and it was attached with masking tape, and a small hole was placed in the plastic, presumably so that only a tiny beam of muted light would shine through. Inside the flashlight, investigators found a section of newspaper wedged inside the flashlight's battery compartment. This very likely intended to keep the battery in place. The paper, the newspaper, was from the April 17th edition of Tulsa World. Investigators entered tent number eight and they found it stained and splattered with blood. There were large blood stains on the wooden floor, particularly near the cot in the southeast corner. The blood stains on the floor were smeared like someone had tried to wipe them up, possibly even using the sheets and blankets from the cots, which we know were found in the sleeping bags with the two girls. So the girls were attacked most likely in the tent. There were no drag marks at the spot where the girls' bodies were found, so they were likely carried from the tent over to this spot and then piled under the tree. Some of the girls' clothing was found nearby. They found two different types of footprints on the floor. One, a tennis shoe, design size 7, and the other was a military-style boot print, estimated to be in the size of 10 to 11 range. Now you're saying male sizes. That I don't know for certain. Um, I would assume that when we're talking about military style boot print and it being size 10 to 11 range, we're, we're looking at male prints there. The interesting thing though, is the tennis shoe design size seven, right? You could speculate really either, I guess. Investigators saw that the screw hooks holding the back flap of the tent were unscrewed and they were placed on the ground. They guessed that the killer entered the tent from the back. Now, this is is this exactly how it happened with the counselor's tent as well? That's a really good question. The description is that the flaps may have been opened in the counselor's tent, but but you paint an interesting picture here when you're trying to see this crime go down or the events of that night. Do we have an individual or individuals that are they're going up to the back of the tents. And like you said, they're, they're canvas material, these walls. Right. So you could perch down and kind of crouch there and wait to see if you hear anybody talking inside. Right. And if you go minutes and minutes and minutes with no talking, now you get brazen enough and you say, all right, well, I'm going to lift open this back portion and just kind of peek in. 
you know, where it wouldn't be as noticeable as opening up one of the flaps. Yeah, I don't know how one perches and crouches at the same time, but... It's difficult. Yeah, you have to be talented. <laughs> yeah. Or, or I could just learn to speak. So we have the camp counselor's tent plus another seven tents. Mm-hmm. So eight in total. Was there things done to other tents? Well, unless you count the story of one of the campers saying, hey, somebody opened up our, our flap to our tent and looked in, then the well, answer we, would be no. Well, and we have the one flaps that were cut, but they were cut the day before correct so the difficult thing here with the statement from one of the young campers that says hey somebody at some point opened up our our flap looked in the tent you know shining a light in there and all i saw was a large shadowy figure right i don't know that we can say for certain that that is one of the killers or the killer walking around looking for a tent or looking for a victim it very well could have been a counselor that thought they heard something and was just simply checking in on the tent and didn't want to wake up the sleeping campers, you know, and if you have one girl that's lying there and opens up her eyes and sees this happen, but doesn't move, the counselor doesn't know that that kid's, you know, sleeping. So that's difficult to say because the interesting thing with that is that the tent, the, the camper says, Hey, somebody opened up our flap and looked in at some point. Right. was the tent that was next to number eight, which all the victims came from. So if it was the killer, did that have, did he see something inside and that tell him, Hey, I'm moving on to another tent. 15 additional agents arrived to conduct searches of the general area. This by early afternoon and by 3 PM, a mobile lab and command post and a converted 25 foot motorhome arrived from Oklahoma city agents and state police began questioning the Kiowa counselors as well as the other adults at camp ambulances transported the dead bodies to the medical examiner's office for autopsies. Swabs were taken from each victim. The bodies were combed all loose hairs and fingernail clippings were collected. Three hairs from a piece of duct tape found on Denise Milner's hands were placed in an evidence bag and sealed. All cords were cut away to preserve the knots for future study. The entire section of bloodstained floor of the tent was removed and taken away. The autopsy results were very upsetting. Denise suffered blunt trauma to the head and died of strangulation. She was sexually assaulted. There were lacerations on her genitalia and fragments of leaves and debris were found in her. Well, was the trauma consistent with that flashlight or did they ever report that? That's really difficult to say because there was another item that was found nearby. I believe it was a like a crowbar or a, a tire changing tool. Right. And they couldn't say for certain where this blunt force trauma came from. Many have have thought over the years that it probably came from that crowbar or the tire changing tool, but there is no definitive statement given regarding those, the blunt force trauma suffered to her head. Michelle was killed by blows to the back of her head and the sides of her head with contusions to the brain. This leading investigators to believe that she was either lying down or standing with her back to the assailant when she was struck. There were indications that she was sexually assaulted. Lori died the same way, blows to the head. She was also sexually assaulted. It's believed both Lori and Michelle were assaulted after they were dead. 
estimated time of death is as early as 2 a.m., but noted that it's likely, most likely, between 4 and 6 a.m. A lot of officers and a lot of agencies. The investigators generally agreed that the murderer entered the tent through the back, struck two girls sleeping on the south side of the tent, killing them or at least incapacitating them. There wasn't much blood on Denise's bed, leading agents to believe that she may have been tied up in the tent, gagged or strangled so she could not scream, then taken outside of the tent, assaulted in the woods where she was found. Regarding the other things that went missing that night, uh, these were the purses belonging to Dee and Suzanne that disappeared sometime in that night. Yeah. Suzanne's purse, which she had sewn herself out of old blue jeans, contained a pair of sunglasses in a case. Pairs of glasses belonging to Suzanne and Carla were missing as well. Carla didn't realize this until June 14th when she was finally allowed to return to her tent. Right. At least one pair of glasses was found discarded in the bushes near the death scene. Well, this gets weird because then you wonder, is it somebody messing with the scene afterwards? Or were these items actually taken that night? That night. Yeah. And then if they were taken that night, did the perpetrator come through the front of the tent or did he come through the back? Because we know the flaps of the back were taken off. Yeah. And you have, like you said, there's like 24 hours that go by before we are told that this item actually went missing. Right. So there's been some thought regarding the glasses that were found. You know, they're removed from the tent. They're found near the death scene in the bushes, almost as if they were just like tossed away. Yeah. And someone, many people have said that it was almost like someone was trying them on or for whatever reason stole them and decided to toss them at the last minute. Investigators collected a pillowcase from the scene stained with semen. In the course of the investigation, every adult at Camp Scott and all of the children in the Kiowa unit were interviewed by agents. All counselors were asked about their sex lives. Investigators looked at Ben Woodward, the camp ranger. He was actually a suspect very early on. Ben was the last person that we know of to enter Camp Scott that Sunday night. So how they approach that? How's your sex life, Colonel? You mean regarding the interviewing the counselors? Right, right. How do you think they went about that? (laughs) Well, And, And me being, I'd be such a jackass that I... You know, they'd be like, how's your sex life, Captain? I'd say, it's kinky. Okay, well, so there were there was some evidence or at least some things at the scene that led some of the investigators to believe. Now, mind you, this is before they received the autopsy reports, right? Right. There were some things found at the scene that led some investigators to believe that the sexual assaults might have been, might have been perpetrated by a female. Mm-hmm. So I think what they're trying to figure out here is everyone's, you know, sex preferences. Right. And, and and we also have the situation where we have a camp full of girls, a camp full of female counselors, and very few men that are working at this area. Ben, I think, Ben Woodward, the camp ranger, I think he really, you know, I said he was a suspect early on. I don't think he technically was a suspect. I think it's just the straight up fact that According to the books, he's the last individual that is known to have entered the camp that night. Yeah. And he was the one that locked the gate. So his story is this. His daughter 
she's grown or at least older and she worked somewhere in town off the campgrounds. Yeah. He had to pick her up from her work, drive her back to their home. And after returning, he locked the gate this around 10 45 PM. Only Ben Woodward and Barbara day had keys to this gate. Is it possible that he left it unlocked when he went to go pick up his daughter? Because that would give somebody an opportunity to get a vehicle on the property and maybe park it in a, in a position where he wouldn't know about. It's possible, but according to his statement, he when he was told of what had happened at the camp, yeah, he, his first course of action was to go to the gate, unlock it, waiting for police to arrive so he could lead them to where he's been told that the first girl was found. They did search his home that day. They found nothing of evidentiary value. And he did take and pass a polygraph test with flying colors. His wife was his alibi. You know, she said, you know, he returned home at around 1045 and was with me all night. And she took a polygraph and passed one as well. Right. Ben told law enforcement that the camp had been subject to break-ins in the off-season with supplies and food stolen more than once. Yeah, but isn't that pretty common with any campground? I would think so, yeah. The most recent break-in occurred several weeks before the camp opened. This is supported by several other associates. It seems the break-ins were considered harmless, almost a reality of life in the remote wooded area. Right. You know, I, I know some guys that have places way out in the middle of nowhere that they use cabins for hunting or for fishing or both. And they go there a handful of times each year. And they always say, Hey, when I, when I show up for that first time and haven't been there in a while, there's things that are changed on my cabin or on my ground. Somebody has been squatting there for a night or two. Right. On the 14th, a local farmer named Jack Schroff showed up at camp Scott with his adult son. He heard about the murders on the news. Jack Schroff told Sheriff Weaver his farmhouse was broken into at some point after 3 p.m. on June 12th, the Sunday when the campers arrived at Camp Scott. So the day leading into the night of the murders. Right. So possibly these break-ins have something to do with the murder, the murders that night. Well, at the very least, Schroff seems to believe they may have. You know, in his property, it's a 110-acre property, it's located about a mile west of Camp Scott. Schroff was there until Sunday, the 12th, until about 3 p.m. So he knows that, hey, I've not been there since this time. When I returned, I noticed that my home was broken into. Right. It had to have happened after 3 p.m. on the 12th. So the agents went to the farmhouse, and they found that the door was kicked in, and they found a boot print on the doormat. Now, Schroff reported that a roll of black duct tape was missing, as well as two six-packs of Paps Blue Ribbon and a crowbar. After thorough searches, three empty PBR bottles and a crowbar were found in the southeast corner of Camp Scott. Cord matching the cord that had tied up the girls was found in the Schroff home. Schroff identified the duct tape found at Camp Scott as looking like duct tape that he had in his house. But he could not identify the flashlight that they found. Now, Schroff immediately became a suspect. Agents theorized the burglary could be just a cover-up. You know, Schroff came up with when he realized he left his flashlight and tape and right. other items at the scene. And that his fingerprints would be found on these items. 
The other thing that's very curious here too, Captain, is his timing. Saying that, hey, my home was broken into sometime after 3 p.m. on the 12th. Well, we know that that was the day that the campers arrived, but it's also the timing, the time that the campers arrived. He's almost purposely removing himself. I mean, he could be truthfully removing himself or purposefully removing himself from that area at the exact time that the later would-be victims are arriving to the camp. All right, so this this wackadoo, he has access and some of his items that, quote-unquote, his barn was broken into, his property was broken into, these items are found at the scene. Correct. So, but we don't think he has motive. Does he have an alibi? What's going to clear this individual? So... This is a tricky thing because he was immediately targeted by the media as a child killer. You know, that they even, I believe the headlines say child slayer on the newspaper the next day. And they have a big picture of him on the newspaper. Yeah, that would, that'd be really nice. You come forward trying to help the police and this is what they get you. Not the police, but the media. He, Shroff immediately agreed and assisted in any in all parts of the investigation that he could. He went in for questioning and he cooperated. He took a polygraph, passed the polygraph test. Now it wasn't just that that cleared him because by all accounts, he has been 100% cleared of any involvement in the crime. And this is because he had multiple properties. Schroff was fairly well to do. He had several alibis that placed him nowhere near the area at the time when the murders occurred. He wasn't in town at that time. Right. So, but it does take some time to track these things down and figure these things out and clear this guy. But before they could, he's labeled by the media as the killer. Well, they would bring in tracking dogs. And once these tracking dogs were brought in, OSBI agents did something interesting. They brought the doormat from the Schroff farmhouse, the one that had the discernible boot print on it. They brought this to the dogs at Camp Scott, and they gave it to them for a scent to follow. The dogs led the agents right back to the Schroff's farmhouse and pond area where a burned campfire was found, a burnt-out campfire. Mm. This is interesting because it means that the killer went straight from the farmhouse you know, from burglarizing the farmhouse sometime after 3 p.m. on Sunday to Camp Scott. Possibly, right? Mm-hmm. So. Well, according to the dogs. Right. Unless, because he these items that were placed at the crime scene were taken from the home. Right. So somebody broke into this home, brought those items with them, and went to Camp Scott. So how did the burglar know that the house would be empty? We, I mean, we don't know for certain, but did the burglar break into the house and happen upon the duct tape and rope and decide to go kill some girls? This seems very unlikely. Right. Now, one thing that Jack Schroff told investigators was that his farmhouse had been repeatedly broken into six, seven, or eight times. Yeah, put some locks on the door. He says, well, when they found the door, it was kicked in. I was joking. Uh, he said usually what was taken from the house was food and tools. Right. Um, but you have to wonder, is it possible that the killer knew that he would find these items at the farmhouse because he had been there before? Possibly having some squatters in the area because of the wilderness. 
you know, there's a lot of times you can get somebody that goes, Hey, I can set up a tent. I could set up a little campground for myself, break into the neighboring houses and I can live off this land for at least a few weeks. Which also makes you wonder if you're going to ask those questions, did the killer go to this farmhouse with the intention of breaking into it to steal items, to commit murders? Did did this killer or killers, did they know that there would be 140 campers showing up that day at Camp Scott? I don't know. And how much was this person keeping an eye on this area? Anyway, on Thursday, so this is four days after the bodies were discovered, a pair of tennis shoes and socks inside a bag labeled Denise Milner were found on the front steps of a Camp Scott building being used as a command post. By all accounts I could find, they were definitely not there the whole time. Someone placed them there. This was right after someone reported seeing a man in the woods for the third night of that week. Investigators used dogs, but they couldn't find anything. They couldn't track anything. They even strung up thread between trees that was found broken the next day, and footprints were found as well, but no trace of anyone. Someone was clearly in the area, moving around at night. A lot more to get to in episode two and three of the Oklahoma Girl Scout Murders. Yep, and we will see everybody back here in the garage tomorrow. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't litter. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore One Nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, Bad Dirt. What makes Bad Dirt so bad? The answer? The ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New Miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like Bad Dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to Miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers.